Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm talking populist power and everyday citizens using means to express themselves, I kind of am optimistic about voice. So, hey, and welcome to another episode of Radio Motherboard. We are one week into the Trump presidency. It feels like it's been a million years. This episode is not going to be about Trump, but it's going to be about something that maybe helped Trump get elected, which is memes and their role in politics and culture. I have Emmanuel Myberg, who is our weekend editor. Hello. I'm very excited to introduce Ryan Milner, who's assistant professor at the College of Charleston in South Carolina. We get paid to write about memes and research memes and go into the deep dark corners of the internet but ryan milner is a meme doctor he has a doctorate (laughs) in memetics technically it's communication but i'll take dr meme for the purposes of this podcast at least he is the author of world made meme a book about memes and their role in culture and sort of their history that was your dissertation sort of expanded out into a full-length book right yeah absolutely so i did the dissertation work in 2012 and then spent the intervening years with everything changing uh, writing the book which just came out October 2016 and now everything is up in the air again so fun times it's a great book everyone should check it out but I also feel like it was published at a really weird time like you look at the origins and memes and how we use them I guess but then suddenly the election happened and You do talk about memes' role in politics and culture, but personally, I feel like everything has been upended. Do you feel the same, Ryan, or can this all fit into a structure? So some of it does feel entirely new and different. For instance, the idea of memes as populist tools, tools that everyday citizens use to express themselves. When I tackle it in the book, I'm tying it to Occupy Wall Street, which was a 2011 mostly leftist grassroots movement. And so I'm kind of sympathetic to that perspective. And so when I'm talking populist power and everyday citizens using memes to express themselves, I kind of am optimistic about voice. 
you know, I talk about the back and forth between different perspectives as a good thing. I certainly get into the darker, more ambivalent, uh, you know, identity antagonisms, the, the deep pockets of 4chan and that kind of thing in the book as well. But what seems different now is just the prevalence of those kind of more antagonistic, ambivalent aspects that are in the book, but I hit in a different way because just the volume of kind of hatred and misinformation and those dimensions that aren't as, you know, fun or quirky or empowering have really risen to prominence. And so that's, I think, a key difference between these two moments, at least in what people are focusing on and the stuff we're seeing being churned out. I don't know if in my old age, I'm not going to the deeper, darker corners of the internet as much anymore, but I feel like uh, in the last year, memes have become almost exclusively political, whereas before they were like very funny often or, you know, their each subculture had their own type of meme. And that certainly still exists to an extent, but I feel like all I see now are Trump memes and Hillary memes and like everything is incredibly antagonistic and charged with politics. So I just saw today somebody uh, tweet something that kind of backs this up. It was one of those kind of uh, dialogue joke tweets. And the top line was Twitter in 2014. Hey, y'all, what color do you think this dress is? Twitter in 2017. And it was a gif of Matt Damon from Saving Private Ryan, just like crying as explosions (laughs) rock all around him. And so I've got that sense, too, that at least my timeline on Twitter, where I see a lot of this participation in play, has been overtaken by this very singular focus. And if you jump to sites like 4chan, Reddit, Tumblr, you're seeing a lot of that as well. So I don't think that that's what everybody's doing and everybody's talking about. There's still other stuff. But post-election, post-inauguration, we're seeing less of, oh, hey, here's Arthur from the PBS Kids show, Arthur doing something gross, haha, and more of people using these tools, these jokes, these texts to respond to what's important to a lot of people, which I think for a lot of people, no matter their perspective, it's the American election. Can I jump in with a question for Ryan? Yes, you're allowed to talk. Okay, so uh, I didn't realize that Occupy had memes. And that to me means that they probably had not very good memes. (laughs) And um, the alt-right and Trump supporters have memes that really stick with you. I mean, Pepe is not exclusively a right-wing meme, but it's a really effective one and one that they use very effectively. And I'm wondering, I mean, to me, it seems like uh, the left and groups like Occupy don't aren't very good at memeing. And I, I'm wondering if you agree, and if so, why that is. There are a couple levels to this. I think that it depends on how you conceptualize meme, right? And if you're talking about the the internet jokes sense, then then I'm inclined to agree. Although with Occupy, we saw a lot of people taking what was hot in 2011, like, oh, do all the things, right? Like, occupy all the streets, right? That's there a little bit. But if you're talking about memes in the sense of these bits of culture that people share, there was a lot with Occupy that resonated that still sticks around, right? The idea of Occupy itself, right? That this is a term that you can employ more and you can put in front of any noun you want to, right? And people will connect it with Occupy Wall Street, I think is an example. I think another example is the idea of the 99% and the 1%. 
So this is, you know, a mimetic idea that people share on Twitter and Tumblr that is still around with us, right? So a few of those ideas have stuck around. But I do think you're right in the sense that the clarity of focus, the clarity of vision, the clarity of what you're playing with and the message you want to get across, the right tends to be a little better than that. Even beyond internet memes, there's a uh, political scholar, George Lakoff, who wrote a book, I think over a decade ago now, called Don't Think of an Elephant, making the argument that one thing the left needs to do better is they need to control their messages a little better. The right is really good at getting everyone to talk on the right's terms, right? Uh, to talk about regulations instead of social protections, for instance. And so I think that that proficiency the right has in controlling its narratives and getting other people to talk on its terms is something that has shown up even in the way that in 2016, we were talking in terms of make America great again. And when even when we were mocking Donald Trump, his issues were the issues that were central. I think that's a good point, because it's something that's been brought up on the left a lot. It's like, what does a person on the left care about? Like you saw it with the women's march. So there was a lot of infighting. And then people discuss like, what should the women's march be about? Uh, you know, who's included? What are issues? Whereas the right is like, Trump is our God emperor. Like that's, that's their meme. Like that's, that's the thing. And it's like the, I don't, I don't want to call it more intellectual, but there's like more debate about what the left stands for. Whereas the right, at least in this election stood for fucking up the system, kicking out whoever is there. And Donald Trump was like this figure that they rallied behind. And the memes show that too, I think. So Emmanuel, you just edited a story. The headline is, is America prepared for meme warfare. That's the working headline. It's written by a freelancer named Jacob Siegel. And his basic premise is memes can be weaponized, basically, right? His idea here is that the Department of Defense and other government agencies have been looking into this and how to use what they call mimetic warfare to win wars and win hearts and minds, basically, right? Like, if you can get your message across and if you can get your ideology to beat other ideologies, then you don't even have to fight a war. You can convince people not to join ISIS rather than fight ISIS. And he goes through a fair bit of research and papers that just show that the government is legitimately interested in this. But the problem is that what he found and what these papers show is that meme warfare favors insurgency. So memes are very good at tearing things down, but not in building them up. So if you want to fuck the system, then memes are good for that. But if you want to build infrastructure and if you want to be like a superpower like the United States that tries to maintain balance uh, across the globe, then you're not going to win that meme war. I don't know if this is a good example, but I remember a few years ago, the NYPD created a Twitter hashtag that was like hashtag my NYPD, I think. And it was like show instances of NYPD helping you out. And it was immediately co-opted. And it was like, oh, look, here's police brutality. Here's stop and frisk, things like that. Is that an example of a meme insurgency? Yeah. I mean, that that's an example that's in the story. <laughs> and the, oh, Yeah, that's a perfect example. You have the NYPD. They're trying to put on a better face for the community and 
share this hashtag where it's like, oh, show how you get along with the cops and that it's all good. But immediately the first thing that happens is that people post cases of police brutality and basically anybody who would look up the hashtag would just find the opposite message of what they want them to find. Ryan, I think this is in your book too. Yeah. So I'm kind of immediately thinking through a few examples that I know that speak to this. I think we just saw it uh, with a, a thank you Trump hashtag that came up on Twitter that got torn down and critiqued in a very similar way to my NYPD. So I think you have a lot of examples of just that point that there's something about the parlance that works for critique and irony and distance. And those ideas seem to be pretty healthy and, and spread pretty well, right? The, the taking down as opposed to maybe the building up. Is that something that you've found basically that memes are the weapons of the, of the insurgents? On one level, yeah, but I think that's a, an interesting kind of spin on this that might contradict, but also kind of support the point is using memes for counterinsurgency, which is, I can't believe that's a sentence I just said, but <laughs> that's, that's uh, the world we live in and the work I do. A phenomenal example of this actually comes from some research that a scholar named Katie Pierce did with an activist named uh, Adnan uh, Hajizada looking at resistance and insurgency in the nation of Azerbaijan. And what they found was, on the one hand, you had a lot of really effective use from insurgent groups trying to dismantle the authoritarian state by using social media, right? So everything from really pointed Twitter accounts to satirical videos posted on YouTube to gross, messy photoshops and that kind of thing. And so on the one level, that speaks to the ability to critique with these tools. But what happened was the Azerbaijani government started using those same tools to rip apart the insurgency and critique the insurgency and keep those protesting down. So they would create sock puppet Twitter accounts that looked and acted like protest leaders, except would have them tweet things like, let's all stay home today, everybody. This is hopeless. There's no point. Or they would create their own photoshops and imagery and seed it through Facebook groups and forums, basically telling people that this is silly. This is pointless. Let's focus on these other issues instead. And so here you have a central authority keeping its power through this kind of mimetic play, but doing so in a way exactly like you described by tearing apart the opposition. And that became the preferred tool for dealing with this kind of uh, pointed play online. My question there is, can't the internet tell the difference between an artisanal meme and a <laughs> propaganda meme? Like a meme made by the FBI or a meme made by like the Russian embassy doesn't have the same cachet as one that came from like 4chan. Or maybe it does. I don't know. I mean, do we know for sure the difference? Because I mean, weren't there a lot of like Russian Twitter accounts? That's the thing. Like there was also this whole correct the record uh, conspiracy going around on Reddit, which correct the record was David Brock's information pack basically to go on Reddit and correct the record, like literally go deep in Reddit and find people who are bashing Hillary and saying, well, actually, like Hillary <laughs> is good. It backfired in a big way, I think, because the Donald and a lot of other people were like, oh, you're a correct the record sock puppet if you like supported Hillary on Reddit. And it's unclear whether they were or not, because you can be anyone on the Internet. So I think that if it's kind of clear and obvious, as it was in that case, that it's coming from this centralized authority and this how do you do fellow kids kind of way, then I think your point stands. But I think the 
the tricky and ingenious thing about this is that whole ambiguity of source and of motive that is so easy to play with online. I mean, Jason, you just talked about it in your recent motherboard piece on these rogue national park and rogue White House Twitter profiles popping up that on the one hand, you want to believe that they come from this source and therefore they have that kind of cred. But on the other hand, you can't really know. So you have to be agnostic until you really know. And if somebody is convincing at making themselves look like one of the in-group, adopting the communication norms of the people you're trying to speak to, then yeah, you can create stuff that resonates. And so this idea that the stuff people create is of the people and by the people, I mean, from the beginning, you've had outlets like BuzzFeed working to kind of manufacture stuff that looks grassroots and kind of astroturf in that way for marketing ends. So why couldn't that happen for governmental ends as well? That's an interesting point you bring up is like looking like one of the crowd. We've talked to Whitney Phillips before who you work with very yeah. closely. Uh, she did her PhD on 4chan. So uh, good company. So she sort of like went deep on 4chan. I'm wondering for the research and writing your book, did you have to go undercover in the meme world? Yeah. So uh, Whitney and I often joke that somewhere out there uh, in 2012, we were both on 4chan at the same time being disgusted by uh, the same things right underneath the goatsy sky is what she says and it <laughs> curses me out uh, so I did I spent a lot of a lot of times looking at the good and the bad and the stuff that really bubbled up and got big and was funny on Twitter or had these popular sins but I spent a lot of time in the deep dark dank as it were and I remember <laughs> So many mornings at coffee shops writing my dissertation and having to position myself with my back to the wall and nobody able to see my laptop because I didn't want to have to offend a passerby or have to explain what I was doing in this coffee shop at 10 a.m. with what I was looking at. The motherboard table at Vice is very much like that. Like we're <laughs> looking at weird stuff all the time. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So this is something that our editor-in-chief, Derek Mead, has brought up a few different times Right after the election, there was a lot of like anger at people who had predicted things, basically anger at political mm -hmm. pundits who said Hillary was going to win, anger at people who pretended to know what was going on in America. We don't know how much memes played a role in the election and fake news, which is sort of related information spread online. We don't know how much of a role that played, but presumably it was some. How much of this have you figured out and like, forgive me for asking, but why should we ever trust like an academic look at what's happening with memes again? Because it's so hard to know what the Internet is doing and how that affects us. I mean, my first offense would be that the scholars I know have been saying that all along. Right. So as marketers and professionals have been like, how do we monetize these memes? You know, and I get calls that say, how can I make something go viral? First thing that, that I will say and that a lot of people say is it's, it's not easy to predict what resonates. It's not easy to predict what will spread or what people will latch onto. You're kind of playing defense in that way. And I think that that's a nuance that comes from appreciating just the multiple perspectives and voices that come with this stuff 
as opposed to taking a more top-down look at trying to engineer these phenomenon. So the scholars I know are sensitive to that. I also think that there's a lot of really old scholarship and studies of culture and communication that can teach us about stuff that's the newest of the new. So for instance, to speak to your point about fake news, Whitney Phillips just within the last couple of days put out a piece on culture digitally that was picked up by New York Magazine about the folk dimensions, as in folklore dimensions of fake news, and saying that we actually know a lot historically about why people latch on to certain beliefs and why they spread stuff that may be factually dubious if it's emotionally true and it resonates to them. And so there's an example of someone taking, you know, ages of cultural precedent and applying it to stuff that's new and happening online. And so I think there's a lot of connection. And this is something I get a lot of my research, right? So you'll see, I actually saw a thing a few days ago on Reddit where uh, there's a figure, I think 2.1 of my book is of Gnome Child. And uh, that image of how we were born too late to explore the earth, born too early to explore the cosmos, but born just in time to browse dank memes. And so that's in the book. And somebody on Reddit posted it and was like, I can't believe this was in a book published by MIT Press. And other people were like, yeah, thanks for ruining all our fun. And then other people jumping on in my defense. So I, I am thankful for them saying, this stuff is fun and it's stupid, but it also matters. And so... <clears throat> out of emotion, yeah. <laughs> if we can figure out how it... If we can figure out a way to talk about it in a sophisticated way, then I think we can get to a better awareness of just what's going on. I don't want to overgeneralize, but who takes your class? Like, what, what types of students want to study memes? So there's a, there's a lot of interest, right? So some of my early communication students are, uh, you know, they kind of they laugh, laugh at first because we're used to thinking about this in, like, a jokey free time. Why would you study that kind of manner? But by the time you get into the social significance, the cultural significance, the political significance, a lot of students who are interested in media anyway, either as a future profession or as people who just spend a lot of time online go, wow, okay, there's actually a value in thinking through this area of life that I spend so much of my time on. And so that tends to be the student who really connects, who really wants to dive in deeper to to an area of their life that has a lot of significance to them. Has it been a lot easier to defend what you've studied since the election, like we need meme professors now more than ever. <laughs> more than ever. Right. <laughs> yeah, in some ways. So I remember uh, going back home for Thanksgiving and my very conservative uncles who had always rolled their eyes at me and like, oh, you study Facebook. I'm like, first of all, no. Second, well, if I did, that'd be fine. <laughs> Cornering me behind my uncle's bar and saying, teach us your ways. Like we need to, we want to understand these tools that our God Emperor is using to... <laughs> convey his wishes directly to his people. I have I have some meme theories I'd like to run by you that we were talking about at the bar last I night. I was going to make you bring these up. I was like, I, don't be shy, Emmanuel. Okay, like, you so, have some strong feelings about okay. some meme, memeology, right? Yeah. So I'm also an uh, impartial journalist, but I think that culturally it would be very healthy for us to have like a counter meme to Pepe because Pepe is kind of toxic right now. Yeah. And we were just sitting around trying to think of what would be a good meme. Like if we wanted to create a meme from scratch, which obviously is probably not the way about doing it. Yeah. yeah, To make memes. But there is a question of like what makes a good meme. And I have this theory that a meme is more potent the more abstract it is. So Pepe is technically a frog, but he's just kind of like this green blob that you can do a lot. 
Yeah. Yeah. He can do so many things with him and he can like travel across cultures and class and, and gender and you can just do whatever you want with him. What, what do you think about that theory that a meme needs to be very abstract in order to travel? So I think you're absolutely right. And this is something that uh, people who look at visual media have known for a long time. There's a book from the 90s by a graphic artist named Scott McCloud called Understanding Comics that's written in graphic novel format, but is this like theoretical take on on how comics work. And one of the points he makes is exactly that. The reason that we click with Calvin and Hobbes is because Calvin is a little two-dimensional, vague-looking kid that could be any of our nieces and nephews, uh, sons and daughters, ourselves as a kid. And so we connect with abstract images and we map onto abstract visuals, emotion, and it's why when we walk by houses, we see faces in them that we feel emotions about. The same thing, I think, happens with some of these images that get passed around is uh, people find something that resonates with them. And so I think you're absolutely right. The kind of flexibility of Pepe has allowed him to resonate in a lot of ways. As far as what a counter to that would be, I'm not sure. I'm thinking, I know for a while there was an attempt to, uh, to, uh, to weaponize the Kermit the Frog, none of my business meme. Oh, that was horrible. That, yeah. Josh Marshall, right? Yeah. It was like, we're going <laughs> to, we're going to have frog meme uh, ideological battles and yeah, didn't really didn't really pick up first of all you mentioned scout mcleod and i also read that in college and that's probably where i got this idea <laughs> so i'm not i'm not clever i think it's interesting you bring up calvin and Hobbes because uh when you said that i immediately thought of uh xkcd the web comic which is just like stick figures but is incredibly uh potent emotionally often like it's stick figures but they say so much and you can put yourself in the position of these stick figures, I think. And so that, that just resonated with me as well. I was going to say that even Trump himself, like his image, like obviously it's very specific, but it's also kind of unreal. Like everything about him is a little unreal. Like the color of his skin is like not a very <laughs> yeah. natural color. And his hair is like not the kind of hair you'd see <laughs> in a human being. But that also makes it easy sort of that in that Scott McCloud sense, easy to replicate and remix with Pepe. Like, do you think that Trump himself, like the human being, is meme friendly? Well, that, that's, I mean, so that was some of the stuff you saw from these groups online and these different forums like the Donald on Reddit or Paul on 4chan. People saying, oh my God, we elected a meme, we got it done. And I think there's something self-caricaturizing about Trump that really makes it easy to make fun of him, right? And to co-opt him. And that's why Alec Baldwin, I think, has been so successful portraying him on SNL. But the other side of that is every time you're writing a tweet that is meant to sound like Donald Trump's tweets, every time you're using Make America Great Again, ironically, you're doing that same work too. So it cuts both ways, right? So he resonates as an easy caricature to critique and an easy caricature to lift up. But whether you're in support or critique, you're spreading kind of his message and his presence, his sloganeering, his ideas around, which I think was probably part of part of the success in a lot of ways, that he was a figure that could be talked about in a way that that Hillary Clinton wasn't. Yeah, and that's something that I've talked about with Whitney Phillips on this podcast before is the idea of amplification. How much should we even talk about the alt-right? Like, is it good that we have all these remixes to Richard Spencer getting punched? 
they're hilarious, so maybe, but <laughs> is that going to rally his side as well? I don't know. Like, maybe. You mentioned we, we, the left. Uh, yeah. The third person, second person left. Mainstream media. Yeah. <laughs> the opposition. Uh, the opposition, yes, needs a counter to Trump. And I'll say that memes have hurt Trump as well in the early days of his presidency. And I think you've seen that with uh, alternative facts and you've seen it with Spicer facts with Sean Spicer. It's just been like getting the shit kicked out of him. Yeah. And I think that those are like his administration is more vulnerable than the man himself, maybe like the credibility of his administration. I think those memes are so weak, though, compared to if you go to Arthur Donald and you see how they view Spicer, which, I mean, I, I, I don't think he's a very effective face for the White House, but they love him and they call him like the Spicer and they use the uh, red hot pepper emoji for every post that has anything to do with him. And it's like, oh, he's spicy again. And it's just so much more fun and and... Like, it works so much better, even though, like, I'm not necessarily, like, a fan of his. It, it They're just, like, why are they better at this? They're just better. <laughs> also, let's say the Democrats come to you, Ryan, and they're like, we have to figure something out. Please help us in, in, in 2020. Like, what what is our meme strategy? What would you advise them? So it's really kind of... Uh classic political framing and going back to that George Lakoff uh, don't think of an elephant idea that you need to at every level be able to frame the debate right so use your terminology effectively don't adopt the Republicans terminology on things stick to a clear message so for instance when Bannon calls the media whatever that is the opposition I would jump all over that and they'll be like, hell yes, the opposition, right? And kind of co-opt that in that way. And so... Like deplorables did. Deplorable. Exactly, right? Exactly like uh, they did. And and to be fair, the, the bad hombres and nasty women thing worked in a similar fashion. But you really got to get a lot of buy-in from a lot of people. And so that is... It's maybe not memes in the sense of Pepe, but it's memes in the sense of controlling a message, uh, spreading an idea, and working to circulate that and seeing if it resonates and, and people latch onto it. And so if you've got these clear ideas that other people can connect to and then share and adopt into their language, then you have a more cohesive identity, a more cohesive set of points, which is something that on you know, the Donald happens really well, like you said, that they can coalesce around this kind of lingua franca. And so I think that you need this this kind of common tongue to think about things and refer to things and, and coalesce that identity. And then you don't have to do the top-down work because stuff will pop up as people are talking to each other and engaging and playing with those premises. It's so funny you say that because it's very similar to the strategy that Democrats say they need to do to regain political power in the U.S., which is we need to run at the school board. We need to run yeah. at the, uh, like, it's, we need grassroots memes. Like, they need to raise children to <laughs> meme at all moments. Right? <laughs> it sounds. Yeah, as you walk out the door, everything you say, uh, think of the memes you're spreading. Be the, be the memes you want to see in the world. What about on an international level? Like, we're talking about, like, United States politics, but what about the meme war between us and Russia? Are we equipped for that, <laughs> in your opinion? Because I always thought that, even going back to the Cold War, one thing that 
in my mind was very obvious is that culturally we're winning. The global culture is this American culture. People watch American movies. People watch American TV, whatever. It's like, it's our world culturally, but it seems like maybe we're slipping in this age of the internet and this age of memes. Yeah. I mean, to an extent, and that's hard because for a meme to resonate, it has to resonate with so many people who connect to its premise or connects to its joke. And that's hard to do cross-culturally. And, you know, when you're talking about seeding ideas cross-culturally, all of a sudden now you're into something that looks suspiciously like imperialism, right? And so I guess the question would be more so how do you resist an outside pointedly political imposition into your norms and ideals that you stand for, as opposed to taking an active, aggressive warfare against Russia to me is ethically and practically a little difficult. So I'm not sure how I would weaponize a meme to launch to the Russians. What if we found a meme that would neutralize ISIS <laughs> or something like that? <laughs> right. Now we're getting into the, the Monty Python territory of, uh, of weaponizing <laughs> jokes, right? And uh, <laughs> finding that joke that everyone laughs at until they die, right? Yeah. Like, would you refuse if, if the Department of Defense came to you and they were like, <laughs> we need help constructing memes to carpet bomb Aleppo or something, you would like, no, we, I, I will not help. Man, reading the article on meme warfare, I feel like uh, I might I might get a call in a few days based on <laughs> some of the stuff that they're talking about there. It, it gets tricky, right? Because the more strategic you try to be, the more top down you try to be, there's ethical implications to that that are worth thinking about, right? Just like any propaganda, any sloganeering, any framing or controlling of a message, uh, I think that you always have to have an ethical understanding of, okay, what is happening when I'm seeding this? What is happening when I'm putting this out there? What is happening when I'm sharing this? And that's honestly one thing that I think has helped the right be effective is a kind of lack of ethical concern about the accuracy or implications of the misinformation that's being shared, right? So you don't want to become your enemy in the process. Have you ever made a viral meme, Ryan? I have never made a viral meme because that would require an amount of attention. I have never engendered myself. I think that my most successful tweet got like 70 retweets one time. And then I had like one post on Reddit that got a thousand upvotes. So that's the closest I've gotten to viral fame, sadly. So as far as uh, a practical how-to, maybe I'm not the person to turn to. I'm not even trying. If I tried, maybe. Probably not. Our producer, Tim, just said entertainment in general has typically been very liberal. And now maybe the counter to that is the right wing meme. World. Yeah. And it's sort of like they found a new avenue to get into popular culture, right? Because if you look at TV, it's still, I mean, late night is dominated by people who are fairly liberal. Uh, They've always had talk radio, whereas like Hollywood TV music, everything has been very liberal, but talk radio has been conservative. So Ryan, do you think that this is a counter to that? And it has it been effective? So I think that the the part of that that's it's true is um, it is a counter to the idea that there's not conservative comedy. So there's definitely comedy, there's definitely jokes uh, that get shared in those vernacular ways. I think the tricky thing about kind of characterizing that in this way is that that seems to seed the idea that the right is more grassroots, the right is more populist, right? That the elites have their TV shows and the people have their memes. And I think that you see more variety with 
memes and online play. There's a lot of it that's conservative, a lot of it that is regressive. And in my book, I kind of walk through from 2010 until 2015, all the horrible stuff that gets posted to 4chan and Reddit and that kind of thing. But at the same time, there is a lot of play that comes from people with conservative perspectives. So I think that I wouldn't cede all of that territory to conservatives. They found stuff that stuck with this election and it worked for them. And it's definitely a place where commentary can be shared outside of those uh, late night talk show kind of circuits. But on those same platforms, Reddit, Twitter, Tumblr, even 4chan, there are jokes cutting the other way too. So I think it's just more of an example of more perspectives being thrown in, thrown into the mix. It'll be interesting to see because uh, like, Trump is in power now. They're not the outsiders. And so I wonder if that will extend down to, to memes. Like the, the insurgency would now be for coming from the left. Right. So that, I mean, there's something to that idea that if these are tools that can critique, if it takes motivated citizens rallying around something, whether it's a joke or a serious point or somewhere in between, uh, we have a lot of people rallying right now. We have a lot of people interested in expressing themselves in really pointed ways. And so you might start to see an outcropping like you're seeing with, you know, alternative facts and, and that kind of thing that, uh, that works more in, in opposition from my personal politics. I'm sad that it took us getting to that point, but who knows, maybe that is, is something we'll start seeing. That's our show. Thank you guys so much for being on. The book is called The World Made Meme. Ryan periodically publishes other things about memes. You can find him on Twitter at RM Milner. Emmanuel is on Motherboard all the time. You can find him on our website. I'm Jason Kepler. We were produced by Tim Barnes, and we will be back next week, I think. Well, we will be. Yeah. Hopefully. <laughs>